it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. This week, I have the privilege of talking with Kendall Titus. Kendall is in her senior year at Stanford and is studying symbolic systems with a concentration in human-centered artificial intelligence. A lifelong athlete, Kendall rode for Stanford and is also a Mayfield Fellow with the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center. During the pandemic, Kendall took a year off school and co-founded Women Ignite, described by Forbes as a professional network of young female tech superstars who want to invest in one another, professionally, financially, and emotionally for the long term as they become the next generation of leaders of the tech industry. I have known Kendall since she was very young, and it was such a treat to get to have this conversation with her. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, and if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and through Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the great joy of being in conversation with Kendall Titus. Kendall, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's just get right into it. Well, uh, I'm Kendall. I'm from Seattle, Washington. I just today is my first day of my senior year of college. I go to Stanford in Palo Alto, and I was born and raised in Seattle. So I'm an only child, and it's just me, Helen, and Marshall, and my parents. (laughs) (laughs) And areas of interest in school. What are you studying? Yes, um, I am majoring in a major at Stanford called Symbolic Systems. It's, I started, I got into it through computer science, but symbolic systems is a major that combines computer science, psychology, linguistics, and philosophy. And then my concentration area is on human-centered artificial intelligence. So just kind of, yes, understanding artificial intelligence as like a field in computer science, but also making sure that that's in conversation with the um, potential impact, both negative and positive consequences of artificial intelligence, like on our society. Mm -hmm. And vision of what you would do after school? Because I know, I'm asking this, I know it can be a very sensitive thing to ask, but I do know that you know, so I'm (laughs) okay asking it. (laughs) Yes, I um, am really excited. I'm going to work at a growth equity investing firm in New York City after school. I'm going to be on their technology team, their business to business software team. And so basically what that just means is it'll be my job to help them find companies um, to invest in that are growing really quickly so they can help them um, grow and scale um, quickly. Nice. And what you're studying connects to that. For those of us who really don't understand this whole area, your area of study, which is very, very broad, also fascinating, connects to this work. How? How? Um, so I actually got into computer science kind of randomly. I was just exploring all the real intro courses at Stanford. And I got to my sophomore year, the beginning of my sophomore year, I was like, I can't say I explored all the intro classes at Stanford without taking CS. I took CS and I realized I really enjoyed it. And I thought about it less so as, oh, I want to be a software engineer and Mm -hmm. more so as well. Like this computer science is like the language of the future. And like, I want to make sure that I speak it. And so not so that I can then code, but so that I can then be in conversation and have a seat at the table and like understand, speak the same language as all like these innovators and the people who are going to make these really groundbreaking technologies. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like my course of study enables me to have good, real in-depth conversations with people who are building um, Mm -hmm. so that I can kind of understand the language they're speaking and where they're coming from. um, But I don't need to necessarily be doing the building myself yet. Mm -hmm. So 
Our podcast, all about overwhelm. Can you relate to being overwhelmed? Is that anything that speaks to you? Oh, yes. (laughs) I definitely can. (laughs) Tell me about it. Overwhelm. I think even this morning is a great example. I think I can be an overthinker. And so Mm -hmm. I think I can work myself into being overwhelmed. And then Mm -hmm. obviously there are times when like circumstance and environment is actually overwhelming. But even just this morning... I'm shopping a couple of classes, my fresh, my senior, well, freshman, Wordian slip, um, my senior <laughs> fall. And I want to like take a couple of classes of interest this fall. And so I'm shopping a few. And I literally had a stress dream about getting into one of these electives that I don't need to graduate. That's just interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And so I woke up at 630 this morning, like I was like stressed. I'm on the wait list. So I was like, oh, maybe I've done something wrong. And at 624, I had gotten an email that said that I had they had tried to enroll me in the course, but mm. it wasn't, it didn't work because it would have exceeded the course, like unit count, like term mm-hmm. maximum for my schedule. So that I was not enrolled and now I'm back at the end of the wait list. And I was so stressed. I was like, oh my gosh, like I messed up. I miscounted the units and now I'm stressed about getting into this class. And I realized I totally worked myself up into this fuss about this elective that I don't need to graduate. That it sounds interesting, but there are other ones also interesting. Mm-hmm. Just like, this is how this one thing, imagine mm-hmm. if that just like multiplied. And if there was something that had a shred more of importance, like that, that could amplify. So it's very easy for me to start overthinking things. And so mm-hmm. I was glad though, that I like walked myself back from that right. one. <laughs> right, that was right. Unnecessary stress. <laughs> right. Okay. So something like that, I mean, just that's adulting, right? That's yeah. like navigating what you need to do, how you need to do it you know, there's not a lot writing on it, but again, there's just like a lot coming at you all the time. And certainly where you go to school, other ways you can relate to overwhelm, what else feels at your stage where you are that it is overwhelming at any given time? Um, I think maybe another, and this is like a really, I'm, I'm going to say this and I, this is coming from a place of privilege that I know, but it, one is opportunity and like opportunity cost. And I think in twofold. One is like present and another is future. Like I think maybe focusing on present right now, like Stanford, this class is one example, but there's so much opportunity at Stanford Uh to explore, to learn, to meet people. And you can't do all of it. Uh And so then you have to figure out like, what's important to you, what's worth your time, how to say no, when to say no. Uh And then you kind of have to figure out how to do all of that. And then you're always worried you're missing something. And like, there's never a, there's never a moment when there isn't a lot of things you could be doing. This could be, you could, oh, could be, could be like dot, 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 like could dot, dot, dot. Like that is like overwhelming. So that's just like being at college, like that in itself. And then almost even a more like macro meta version is like, I'm at a place in an institution and I come from a background that I've just, I have been afforded a lot of opportunities. And so then what I decided to do with all of them and like what I should do next, what I could do next, like mm-hmm. that is also, I think it's really exciting and I feel very lucky and proud to be able to say like, I feel like I have a lot of options, a lot of opportunities. It, it could be limitless in some capacity of like how I decide to use my education and my, um, my energy and my able body and all that. But that's also overwhelming. Like, what should I do? What could I do? Those are different questions. Um, so it's like the present and the future forms of opportunity can be very overwhelming. Right. Let's go a little deeper into that, Kendall. So you identify as Black racially, 
Yes. Good. Mixed race in any way or how do you? Mm, I think, no, I'm definitely black. I think sometimes mm-hmm. I'll say I'm half Jamaican. Like my mom is fully Jamaican. Um, mm-hmm. so I might like make that kind of ethno, um, ethno identity like relevant, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but I'm black. Mm-hmm. Okay. So any way that that ties in to what you're talking about with the <laughs> overwhelm and the opportunities. And I heard you say a couple of times, like what you should do with yeah. it. So yeah. can you share with us a little bit more there? Yeah. So I had a really interesting kind of learning in spring of 2020, the whole thing. I don't know. I, I kind of now refer to that as like the black lives matter awakening for like the rest of the world, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was a really interesting moment because there was a lot of attention on like the black experience in America. Right. And there are a lot of, a lot of information being shared, um, a lot of resources being passed out, a lot of just like a lot of knowledge and trying to be exchanged and passed around. And it was an interesting time because I had some people, like lots of people checking in or like, you know, just like asking how to engage and, and that all that, like very caring. It. But right. a lot of what was being passed around, a lot of what was being talked about felt like a black experience in America that was not mine. Mm. And then people kind of asking me things about like this, like being black in America and like this version of it or that version of it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, like, I don't uh, necessarily identify with that, all of it. But then like reckoning with pieces that I do and like sure. was like, oh, well, like, yes, maybe in my life and my story and people who know me well, like I haven't, uh, my experience is different. But then also like someone who doesn't know me, like the fact that like I could just be reduced to the color of my skin with no context is like the whole, something that really ties all together. Etc. Right. Anyways, a lot of like personal learnings, uh, helping with friends and learning with friends and things like that. But a really big place that I got to was like, wow, I am like an anomaly. Like I'm a black woman in America who's grown up privileged in education and in um, different types of resources that I've had access to. And I have a lot of opportunity. Like this kind of limitless sense of opportunity that I have as a black woman in America is not normal, is a minority within even another minority. Mm-hmm. Um, then that realization all immediately came with a lot of guilt. It was like, mm. wow, like, I think I have enough pride to be able to say like, you know, like I uh, pursue opportunities and I like open doors for myself and, and things like that. But also like, those are all doors that just like exist in my world and that I know are there. And that's totally circumstance. That's totally product of family of like, just like circumstance. Mm. Um, and I was like, wow, like why me versus any other person? So that was like, came with immediately with a, like a large overwhelming sense of guilt, like, ah, like, and then it's okay, like, um, burden is, I might be heavy, but just okay, like, well, I have all this opportunity and all this privilege as like right. this like anomaly minority. Now, is it my job? So then I was like, what am I supposed to do with it? So like, this right. is like maybe the good part. And it's like, okay, do, is it two paths kind of came in my mind? Like, is one, like, is my job then to like, create this opportunity for like as all anyone else in my position or as many people as possible or is it like do I just like keep my head down and focus on what I'm passionate about and hopefully like by pursuing opportunities like I create paths that didn't exist before like I don't know then there's a lot of different directions to go there mm-hmm. um so that now is the question that I think I'm still wrapping my head around but I had to I had to get past the like guilty feeling I was like I can't do anything about this now so like this is who I am this is where I've been and what I've done so far how does it right. form me going forward? Yeah. So how did you reconcile that guilt? That That is something, whether or not people can relate to it, 
in the regard that you're saying. I mean, I just think that folks navigating guilt and shame is something that is so fraught and can be so consuming and of course can get very toxic and dangerous. How did you do that? How did you find your way through that? How did I navigate the guilt? Um, I think I realized that being able to articulate this and that I have done this thinking and I'm aware of this privilege and like my place in the world and like how it, it, it has come to be that mm-hmm. kind of like personal understanding and awareness mm-hmm. was really like all that could be expected almost like non-controversially if that makes sense like right yeah other steps there are next steps that I think I should and I could take and that kind of like is where I feel like it gets less clear but mm-hmm. then the idea like at least like a as a baseline like you have to know what you don't know and also know like where you come from and be very aware of like where that puts you in like a schema like of other people of other places um and also be open and willing to like adjust that and to constantly be reevaluating that. And like that as a baseline is like as kind of like that's as baseline as I can get. And like as long as I maintain that, like it can't change my background. I can't do anything about it. And the ways in which I like not make up for it, but the ways in which I use that and leverage mm-hmm. that, like that's where I think there could be controversy. There's like a lot of different opinions. But like that mm-hmm. first step has to happen mm-hmm. anyway. So like the right. fact that I'm doing that and I do that and I actively feel like I practice that makes me feel better because the next step, no matter which direction I take, there's always an argument for a different direction. But I feel mm-hmm. like this like step of being aware, like I don't feel like there's an argument against that. So for now, you don't feel informed by guilt, right? Like that's not the driving force for you right now. You've been able to reconcile this to such a degree that you have some clarity about what you're wanting to do in the future. Lots of opportunities await you, but you don't feel like the tailwinds behind you are guilt. Correct. Uh, Yes. Correct. I do not feel informed or like pushed by guilt. No. Yeah. It's something that I talk a lot about with folks in my work and trying to help people who are navigating this realize, I think, you know, and what I've learned from my teachers, the critical role of gratitude Mm. as opposed to guilt, right? So being able to have, I mean, you know, guilt can be a window in exactly as you're saying to insight, to introspection, to self-reflection, and just continuing to have that around us very, very unhealthy. What I have learned from my teachers is how powerful it is to really try to be guided by gratitude and that, that, I mean, you know, whether it's food we eat, whether it's where we live, whether it's capacity in a number of levels, like you're saying with race, with class, but being able to really focus on the gratitude piece. And then from there, we can decide how we want to work for social justice, environmental justice, social change, or just being the person we want to be out in the world. hundred percent. I think gratitude is something that, uh, also, especially during COVID, uh, the pandemic in the past couple of years, it's really bubbled up in um, in my life in general. Just like realizing how grateful I am for people and things and uh, my family in particular and like the life that I've lived up to this point, like being grateful for things, um, I think it's just become a lot more like 
in my mind as more routine, like it's more routinely mm-hmm. a part of my thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say in the past couple of years and like now going forward than it had been before. And I, but, and I, uh, I think perhaps obviously the pandemic was a big accelerant of that and like a big catalyst and a reason for that. But I also do wonder if maybe that could be part of growing up too, is like kind of mm-hmm. having a little bit more capacity for gratitude. I don't know. Mm. Does does the gratitude piece is that connected in any way for you religiously, spiritually, family values, or is it something that you you were just feeling that it was arising within you? I felt very much like it was arising within me. I don't practice religiously or spiritually, not for not not for lack of like not for a reason. I like I'm so curious about it. I just. I haven't felt like I, I didn't grow up with it, uh, like mm-hmm. deeply rooted in like routine. And then I think I'm curious about it. I just like haven't, I feel like there'd be a lot I would want to learn and think about. And it just feels like another like process that I would like to go through, which maybe is like the wrong way to think about it. Um, but the gratitude definitely came about from, it was grounded in COVID because I feel mm-hmm. very, very fortunate that family close to me has not, like no one was fatally like no one died in my mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. due to COVID. Mm-hmm. I was like so grateful for that. And that was like, wow, mm-hmm. that's just layer one right now. That's like a primal gratefulness. And I was like, wow, there's so many other layers to this, to the gratitude I feel in this moment. And I felt that a lot in the last two years. And then like, now I keep that, I think about that a lot more too, more frequently. Right. Right. Let's talk about mental health if you're willing to. So I've known you since you were tiny, tiny <laughs> child. Um, you have a gear. You really operate at a very, very high level. Um, your parents are tremendous, incredible individuals, also operate <laughs> with a particular gear. So you went to a high school that was known to be intense. You are at a college that is known to be intense. You laugh all the time. (laughs) It is rare that I don't see you smiling authentically, really smiling authentically. Um, I think anybody who spends time with you, one of the first words they would use to describe you is joyful. How does all of that coexist? And how do you, how do you navigate your own mental health? Yeah. Wow. Okay. This the answer I give now will, will probably be different in the future, and it was definitely different in the past. It's very, it's evolving. How mm. I ask myself that question times too. Like I don't know why. What I love, I laugh easily, and that doesn't feel like a personality trait. Honestly, it feels like it's just like part of me. Like I don't know where that comes from, but I just think lots of things are funny. Like my an automatic response I have to a lot of things is laughter. Um, I don't know mm. how early that started, honestly, but it feels like as long as I can remember, that's been like almost a default mode. <laughs> um, how I think. One thing that feels important to me to like always say, I guess, when I've been asked something like this is like, it's not always like that. You know, it's not always like sunshine and rainbows. And I think I thought about that once because I I found myself making, I had a lovely birthday dinner a year or two ago um, where a lot of my friends like went around, like said something nice about me, which was so sweet. And a theme had been like this idea of like sunshine that I was like, sunshine, like, wow, that's such a beautiful thing to be referred to. But I found myself making like a cynical joke about it. <laughs> like, oh, I'm just everyone's sunshine. Like, that's nice. But I was like, I'm not like, not only that, like it's not always sunshine and rainbows, you know? Right. Um, right. Yeah. 
And then I started thinking about that. I was like, oh, but do people see that? Like, I don't want to also just be sunshine. I don't also just want to be sunshine rainbows. I'm happy to be sunshine for everyone. I would love that. But I also like, am not just that. Um, But how do I, how how do I like get off that demeanor? I think a big, a big part of it is I do, I do love to laugh. Like I do, I do Mm -hmm. find a lot of, I like humor. Like I think funny Mm -hmm. people, I, I, maybe I think I'm funny sometimes and I like it when my friends think I'm funny and I like being around people who I think are funny. Mm-hmm. And so I think that could be, I think people is a really big part of it. Like I do genuinely get a lot of energy and joy by being around people. And that's not to say that like, that's the reason I'm happy, but I'm pretty good and I'm getting even better. I would say like knowing like doing what I, knowing what I want and like what in a mm-hmm. moment, not like, at a meta level, but like right. at a micro level, like a mm-hmm. moment to moment, like day to day, hour to hour, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good and getting better, like really being able to do what I want mm-hmm. in that moment. Mm-hmm. I think in college, it's like a really good time to be able to like practice that because you have a lot of autonomy and like not a lot of responsibility outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like a really help, helpful practice. Like it's like, oh, I want to be doing this or like I also exercise a lot and I wonder if I honestly wonder if that has to do with it like I grew up as an athlete so it's constantly working out and like moving your body and being outside I also I do live I grew up in Seattle Washington it's a beautiful place I go to school in Northern California a beautiful place I I'm in environments that are beautiful and like full of nature and full of activity and so I do wonder if like that background of my life has also affected that it's like a like a baseline so it's a lot of like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't have a, I don't have a secret sauce. I like am constantly like thinking about what could be adding to this mm-hmm. aspect of my personality, but I don't really know. I don't have a, a routine that I can hand over. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to your point, in terms of the multidimensional, it's, and I hear you that it's, it's, one never wants to be reduced to, you know, a single thing. And so the multidimensional piece and the different layers of depth that you have. So I am particularly interested when somebody has the capacity that you have for joy and for laughter and for exuding light, even when it's, it's not that circumstantially everything. I mean, you know, you're not in some like kind of just blissed out altered reality all the time. And so I think that's part of it is yet the nature nurture of kind of Mm -hmm. what is one spirit and then what are the practices that we bring in, right. To be able to continue to have that surface. And then I think the other piece with what you're saying is then when things are hard, how do you navigate that? Right. So let's talk then about some of those moments that you've had in life that where there's been a lot of headwinds where you've Mm -hmm. had to navigate things that have been painful and difficult. What are your strategies there? Yes. Okay. Good question. This year has been hard. This year has been full of a lot of loss in a way that I've never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And that has been stressful. It's it's for one thing, so loss is always like grief, understanding that process, like just learning to do that as 22 and like learning, like being thrown into it, like that's like been very hard and also has like uh, even introduced like a bit of an anxiety that I have now about like 
I'd never really thought about like the threat almost of like Mm -hmm. other people's death. Mm -hmm. And now it's like a little bit of an anxiety. It's like, yes, you think of your family and your close friends, but I find myself even almost like running analyses of like when I have think of a person in my life, it's like, oh, what's like, would be the impact of their death, like on my like mental health, you know, and that's a really weird game. I've like played and I have felt that a lot immediately following the losses I've had. And for context, like three people in my life passed away this year. I found three funerals. It's just like feels like a lot for my from my own personal experience, having gone to one prior in my entire life. Um so I think the coping mechanisms I've had for that. One has been to like like let it be sad. <laughs> like not try to make it better. I think I often will try to find like the bright side. Like I think I like will turn something into like, oh, okay, well like, well actually that's okay because like now that I learned about that or, oh, that's okay because like now I have this new experience to like talk about and to learn from. And so I'll, I'll often reframe. I'm often reframing things to be better. Um, but there's not much to reframe about a loss of life. Right. And so I think having to like let it be and not take control of like the narrative of like reframing it and like making it better because there's nothing to do about that. Mm-hmm. So that has been, I think, probably very important and also probably something I could apply in other, um, like not just in grief. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been happy to, I guess, maybe practice that um and then I also think it made me realize how much I do reframe in other parts of my life mm-hmm. um and so sometimes taking a step back when I start to think about something that might have been a bummer but now it's fine it's like mm-hmm. well is it actually fine or did I just t- create a, ver- a reality in which now it's fine yeah. um so that's been an important learning I think mm-hmm. for sure and that ties back to what you're saying about not wanting to be seen as, you know, single dimensional with the whole just sunshiny piece, right? That it's, there's a way that we can do this reframing that's where we're not being honest with ourselves, where yes. it's inauthentic to ourselves. And particularly, I think that's hard when someone has a personality or presents in such a way or, or certain people just, you know, decide that you're going to be this role in their life, that you're going to be the funny one, or, you know, you're going to be the one who shows up for them in this way that people can have a lot of attachment then to that, which I think then can reinforce, like you're saying, if you have a tendency to be like, okay, I'm good at reframing. And sometimes that can be really helpful. And sometimes it might actually not be your honest reality. Yeah. I think that's, I like that point that maybe even also the pers- who I am to other people then will reinforce and like drive home that to myself as well. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And I think particularly, I mean, something we've talked about on the podcast before, I mean, particularly, you know, being a woman of color, being black, being funny, you know, there's a lot in there that can be potentially fraught. Right. Mm-hmm. And in terms of people's attachment and then just the way that racism works and the internalized racism works, uh, it's, I think it's something that, you know, it can be tiring to kind of hold all of that consciousness and awareness and see like what's in alignment with who one actually is and then what we're wading through in terms of those storylines. Yeah. I think one thing I've 
to that exact point, actually, I'm realizing that this is very related is I've practiced and started to be a lot more like be more vocal to the people close to me about like when things aren't going well or like when mm-hmm. I am struggling with something. Mm-hmm. And it's a good reminder that like I feel like I'm a very, very empathetic person, a very, very active listener. I care very deeply about the people that I'm close with and I want them to like confide in me and mm-hmm. um, to feel comfortable with that. But um, I've realized that like I often have always pursued that as like one direction, like, but I don't do the same. Uh-huh. and I've started practicing doing that with more people that also people I'm, I would consider very close with, but uh-huh. not just choosing one or two people, like more friends with maybe different things that that friend might be even a more like might relate to more or anything like that. Uh-huh. And I, I realize it makes me feel closer. I, I'm like, wow, like making it go two directions also releases some of that. Bur- like I feel a lot more open already. So I, and it's interesting. I like, made that intentional and then I have realized like oh wow I feel better with even the people that I already felt I was close with Mm. Kendall that you know making oneself vulnerable in that way is not without risk yes yeah and so has that been has it felt like a heavy it sounds like it's gone well so far has that been a heavy lift at all in terms of okay this is going to mean I'm more vulnerable if I'm opening up to folks in this way. And if I'm, you know, in any way, allowing people to see me on this level. I think it definitely yeah does not come without risk. But again, like the perspective about like, what risk really is when I feel like I've thought a lot about like life and death, honestly, like Mm -hmm. it just like, that like stark contrast has made so many other things in my life feel very less stark. <laughs> like the like the gray area and like the mm-hmm. the consequences or like the worst thing or like what happens like if you're vulnerable with someone and then maybe they betray a trust or they make a comment in a different way that like makes you feel like, oh, I wish I hadn't been vulnerable. Like, I don't know, it's just not maybe that is actually not as much of a downside. Like that down is not as down as you Mm -hmm. think it is relatively. Like the relative consequence of actions and like of hurt and of trust and everything versus like the upside maybe has been, I've I've recalibrated in a different Mm -hmm. way than maybe I have in the past, like in high school or something like that. That's beautiful, Kendall. Let's talk a bit more about grief, if you're willing. I know so many young people right now who are wading through indescribable amounts of grief, and some I know in my personal life and some I know through my work. And the the presence of grief and loss is really something right now. I know you lost a dear friend to suicide. I don't know how the other two loved ones died. I know your dear friend who died by suicide, that was a very public loss. And I know that that can add many additional layers of pain and complexity. So anything that you would be willing to share for folks who are joining us and listening in terms of how you 
moved through that? You've spoken a little bit about it, but anything else you're willing to share in terms of how you moved through that? Um, I think, I think a lot of my thinking, maybe like a meta, a meta theme has been around time and the passage of time. Like I think a dear friend who passes away by suicide, like there's like a loss of time. Like time is done. Time, time being up in a very unexpected, surprising way. And that's jarring because it's like, oh my gosh, the time is up and you hadn't even been looking at the clock. So then there's so much that's just caught off guard because you're not even watching the clock. One of the people who passed away for the comparison was my grandfather. um, And they passed away within two weeks of each other. And that kind of juxtaposition and um, was really, and thinking about the passage of time, um, one being like, oh, wow, like the ending of life is always very difficult, but having one where maybe like the time you had been looking at the clock and another where like the clock wasn't even in, wasn't even in your thoughts um, can make, I think the the grieving process very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in terms of, um, like you mentioned, like, okay, yeah, so the, my friend was like a very public loss. And that was interesting in the sense of like, and in college. So college is a time in which like very short periods of time are filled to the brim. And so time flies by and a month of time in college is very different than a month of time in really any point of your life going forward. It's like, it's so much happens. Yes. And so realizing that like, it felt like in terms of events occurred in the past seven months, basically, so much has happened. It feels like so much time has passed. It hasn't even been a year, like a year hasn't even gone by. Like, and so that's having college overlaid with events that and processes that do not happen on a college timeline is also very is very jarring because it feels like a mismatch. Like right now, everything in my life feels like it operates on the quarter system, which happens in 10 week chunks, which goes very quickly, which is filled. Once one quarter's over, it's in the past, it's gone, it's done. You completely move on. Like everything is like, go, 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 but you leave it behind. And it's just like, you're just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. Right. And grief just does not operate on that timeline. And, um, I think that has been a really crazy lesson to have in conjunction with like college and this time in life, which like does go very fast. You do like go fast and then drop things and then just like move, keep going. And that's just not how grief works. Um, So that's been a really like that learning that, like learning that like things happen on different time scales uh, and letting them happen and, and having them have to coexist is a challenge, but also like, something that now I'm going through and I think we'll all probably apply to other things in the future too, but I just like had learned that in this way. Yeah. And what practices did you find helpful with the heartbreak of those deaths in your life? What did you do to tend to yourself? What did you do to kind of make it through day after day? What, what did you find to be soothing 
for me personally, I spent a lot of time with people that mm. I love. Like I just spent a lot of time with other loved ones. Uh, like on campus, there's like other friends. Um, I made intentional choices during breaks and things to like see other people that I felt like very cared for, um, that I felt like I could be very whole with. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly spent less time with people who like I wasn't as close with. And that was something like as a type of person, I like to spend a lot of time with like a lot of people and like mm-hmm. feel like I'm feeling lots of different meeting lots of people at the time and new relationships and like you have some people you're close with, some people you're acquaintances with, and I just like like to give energy and get energy from all of that. Mm-hmm. And I just found myself I spent a lot more time with people that I felt closer with and like um didn't make myself like prioritize seeing a quantity of people and like so many people as much as like a lot of time with like the same Mm -hmm. um so that was good and then I would also I was outside a lot like moving my body which is like Mm -hmm. feels really good for me like running walking um being outside Mm -hmm. and then also like when I felt bad like when inevitably it I felt sad or it was a wave it came, would come in waves I would just like mm-hmm. have to like I said earlier like let it let it be like not fight it um so I think those three things like yeah being outside spending time with people I really loved and just like letting it hit when it did um mm-hmm. all things. Mm-hmm. one of the things that I keep hearing as a recurring theme which I know from my own life is something that can be very prominent is as time passes, and like you're saying, there can be ways we're spending time in our lives so that it feels extra surreal how time is passing. As that time passes, which we don't have a choice over, time is going to pass. And I know for a lot of the young people I'm spending time with, there can be this really painful conflict of surrendering to that and and moving forward with time and simultaneously feeling an additional loss of then being farther away from the loved one who died and the fear of not remembering what they their voice sounds like and not remembering what it was like to be in their presence and not remembering how they smelled and not remembering what it was just like to coexist with them. And I think that there's ways that all of that can manifest in very concrete, exceedingly difficult ways, scenarios, habits that can form. I'm wondering if you could speak to that, if that's something that you can relate to in terms of that passage of time. And some of what I've been trying to support folks around is how does one honor the legacy of the person who we've lost and what do we carry forward from them in our lives to honor their legacy that that doesn't solve all of that certainly and i do think it's important for mourners to have some just concrete action steps particularly when it just can feel so nebulous it just can feel like this you know void of every day that passes i'm farther away from that person yeah so I'm wondering if you can relate to that and what your thoughts are. Definitely relate. I think in all honesty, I feel like that's like, I have, don't have an answer at all. Cause that's exactly like what I feel like is happening. Like, I think it's like in process. Like I think I'm still working. Like it hasn't been, it's been like almost seven months. And so I feel like I'm getting to the place where I'm like, Oh, maybe a bit nervous about that type of not remembering. And like, what do you then do to like, make sure like what the fading and the time so much has happened so much like my life is moving on but like how do I keep 
this person involved in like what I um like what I'm still doing in like my life actively, not mm-hmm. just in the past. So I think that's something I'm still thinking about. One thing on the like earlier point, like yes, like definitely habits of like there were places that I would avoid like mm-hmm. right after, like in the immediate aftermath. And then there would be places that I would like consider I was going like extra frequently, like a certain coffee shop I was going to like every day, sometimes twice a day, just like for like a stint and then other places where like I don't want to walk by this place because like it's just, just like too uh, much of a reminder of the loss. Um, but then now I think I had a really good conversation with um, like a mentor recently where she she lost her father this year and mm-hmm. was working on ways the sim- going through the same the same thing um, a very similar thing um, mm-hmm. and she was saying how like pr- finding ways to um, incorporate their memory and their presence in to your point like everyday life like honoring their spirit but Mm -hmm. also like her point to me was like every time you remember it doesn't need to be sad Mm -hmm. and I think maybe part of me I'll remember her and then I get like eventually like I'll remember in the sense context then it like kind of it brings it down but it doesn't have to be that way every time and so I and that felt almost felt good to have almost have her say that like it shouldn't be sad it doesn't need to be sad every time and almost mm-hmm. having someone like tell me that I was like oh okay like mm-hmm. I'll try let me try that you know um so I'm open to other people's advice on this <laughs> honestly I don't think I really have advice to give for someone else right now mm. thank you so much Kendall you're a senior you took a gap year in college and created an incredible program with one of your dear friends. Can you tell us a little bit about what you created? It was incredibly inspired and inspiring. <laughs> yes. I feel like I had the language to describe this so down for at a time. <laughs> and so now I'm going to try a little bit rusty. Um, but yeah, it's with my best friend from high school. I started, um, a residential um, incubator for other young women excited and interested in technology and entrepreneurship. And the short-term vision um, was, you know, an in-person alternative to online school. And the long-term vision was the groundwork for the next generation, a professional network for the next generation of young women in tech and entrepreneurship. So how that actually manifested was um, my co-founder and I, we ran two cohorts um, of 20 to 21 young women. So those everywhere from um, sophomore in college to seniors in college who then um, took time off in their studies to attend the program. And we one cohort was nine weeks, the other was eight and a half. And we ran like an accelerator program. So they came to, they applied to the program and then they came with ideas about um, projects or, or um, issue areas that they wanted to pursue. And then we kind of led them through a curriculum to help them develop an MVP of some kind um, that had to do with like a technological solution to an issue area they believed was facing our generation. That's everything from mental health to climate change to philanthropy, um, all like a, a wide range. And what did you learn from it? 
Okay. There's so many things that I learned and I, it's, it's hard to, but what I say, what I've what found is easiest, like for myself, like a takeaway mm-hmm. I had just yes. for Kendall right. was the confidence to realize you can have an idea with your best friend mm-hmm. on a porch. And then six months later, you could have realized that idea and then impacted like tens of hundreds of lives. And that's really empowering to get that realization as a 20 year old um, because it's it's made me a lot more confident just Mm. as a person in my Mm -hmm. ability to create things, to be creative, to build things, to Mm -hmm. like make some, make things out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are actually very, very related. Um, And so I just am a lot more confident in like who I am um, and what I can do. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really probably the most core takeaway that I got from that experience. Mm -hmm. And Kendall, true to who you are, you're very, very humble. So you affected so many people's lives and a lot of people knew about what you were doing. It was written up in Forbes and it was so highly regarded. And I, I, I really hope you're able to take in how tremendous that was, what you created and what it still means for all those folks whose lives you touched. I think it was also just incredible to get to do something like that with someone you love. Like it wasn't like, it was a solo adventure. It was like, it was an adventure with my best friend. And that was also just like, so cool. Like that's so cool to know, like you can do amazing things with people you love and it doesn't need to be work and work and play can all be one and they can be with people that you love like that's so cool to see that intersection so young so it gives me a lot to like I think strive for yes yes let me ask you about this dynamic of I talk a lot about sympathetic joy it's a term that I know to be from Buddhism where one practices being truly 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 happy for another person I think that Right now in our country, there's this negativity bias that there's so much struggle that so many people are having to assume well about others. In my experience, in environments like you have spent a lot of time in, where there are these, some would say, pressure cookery, super, super, super intense, very unrealistic on many levels environments academically, sports, other places where you've walked, sometimes that negativity bias can really kick in connected to a degree of competitiveness and like a just a false belief that there's not space for everybody, right? And that others are more of a threat, you know, than a presence that can be edifying and nurturing and where everybody can help the other person. And I think that, of course, that can be deeply, deeply, deeply unconscious that there are some folks either through their lives or they've deliberately practiced being able to be truly happy for other people and not seeing anybody else's success as a threat to what they have going on. And again, it's not exclusively for environments that are very intense. I do think environments that are very intense, there is a way that it can foster that. So it's competitive as opposed to collaborative. I think about you, Kendall, with a number of layers in terms of 
gender, race, as you said, privilege you've had, places you've spent time. And my experience of you, of course, not all, you know, blissed out all the time. I have not, however, experienced you as diminishing who you are to acquiesce to others or to try to, in some way that's not genuine, help somebody else feel better about themselves, just in a, in a way that wouldn't be authentic. That that experience that I think many, many, many folks of color have and folks from other historically oppressed, marginalized groups can have of somehow feeling like we have to diminish who we are. And that that whole experience of actually trying to be one's fullest self can result in that, you know, the way that internalized racism can surface, internalized oppression can surface, or just full on oppression can surface of kind of who do you think you are? And so I think there's those larger dynamics that can come. And then I also think it can be really hard peer to peer when folks haven't been practicing it, or if it's not a ethic with which they've been raised to really be able to celebrate one's friends and one's peers and be so psyched for somebody else, even if we might not feel like we have all this ground underneath us right now. So can you talk a little bit about that? Share anything you can in terms of your experience with that and how you navigate that. Because my experience of you, Kendall, is you have a ton of humility. You have so much grace. You are really enthusiastic for others. And, you know, that doesn't mean that that's reciprocated out there in other relationships. So what has that been like for you? Uh, well, first, thank you. You waste a lot of compliments in there. I'm very appreciative of that. Very, very kind, very, very kind view of, of my person. So thank you. I, I take that to heart. Um, but let's see. That was layered, and I think I had a couple of ideas. Um, the first one is I think this is, I think, two sides of this coin, but the honest truth is that. In some senses, I think this was a privilege. I grew up really not thinking about my race as a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And I think I have been reckoning with my blackness and the place of my blackness on a similar timeline as like mainstream America has been mm-hmm. reckoning with like the place of black people and like the experience of black people mm-hmm. and so I think that that is a privileged timeline to have been grappling with all of these mm-hmm. um things mm-hmm. and so I feel like I'm going through this this like motion of like coming into my own in terms of my race at a time that's very open to that where in the places that I like find myself um, and so I think that's very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's probably a reason why, like, I've not felt the need in the past, to, like, beat him. And so I, I, get, I got to grow into this person with this personality um, and maybe didn't realize how race was affecting it. Because I think it's mm-hmm. not even saying it hadn't affected it, but wasn't aware of it in a right. conscious way for so long. And now that I'm coming into that awareness, I feel like I am constantly in safe spaces to, like, get to do that 
mm-hmm. in line with like, I don't feel like I have to change the way I'm acting, but I can just process that as is where I am. And so I just think I'm very lucky in the sense like those are the environments and spaces that I was, I've grown up in and I'm continuing to like put myself in and maybe right. I'll get to a place that's less warm and fuzzy, but I'll have gotten to do all this processing and these really yes. healthy spaces for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I've been very lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other point of this like sympathetic joy of like getting to be very excited and enthusiastic about other people. Mm-hmm. Maybe I have, the, I'm guessing here and I, I'm getting as about like my past in terms of like maybe how this developed, but I'm an only child and I was always an only child who like was very supported by my family, but then also was very present in like my friends' families. Like I was mm. kind of always that, Oh, like, you know, Kendall's that friend that's like kind of, you know, always here for dinner or like, oh, she's the friend that like, oh, the sibling likes too. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I love my friends and their families mm-hmm. and felt very loved also by my close friends and their families. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe because of that got used to like a lot being part of a lot of different intimate spaces and like right. getting to feel very comfortable. And so I've seen a lot of maybe different family dynamics and mm-hmm. having that contact, knowing that like every person like comes from this context, like there's so much to, to unpack about every single person. Yes. Like we only see one side, one sliver of every single person. Right. And you just don't, unless you, and even when you're inside of it for a second, you think your sliver is expanding. Like there's still even more that you're not seeing. Right. Um, and so I think, from a relatively young age, I realize now, um, maybe like through like high school, I just like, it became very clear to me that like, you never have the whole story on someone. Mm -hmm. And so why would you ever want to be like a negative impact? Because you have no idea how much negativity or like, where, what's the straw that's going to bring the camels back? You don't know how much hay is stacked up behind their eyes. Um, And so I think I very... I, yeah, I realized now relatively early age, I came to this like, conclusion, like, I don't want to be a negative, a negative influence, a negative impact on any one person, because I don't know how much, who knows what they're already going through. Right. And I think, I think there's probably a stage in which I maybe overcompensated for that. And so I was maybe too acquiescent, almost too much like that, that over sunshine, like that over rainbow. And like, I don't want to do that to a point where I like, to your point, like, I'm reframing stuff in my own head to make sure it's positive. Like, you know, like it, yeah, that can go down sure. its own rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that is where a lot of my like real like empathy and also like just genuine, I guess like, I like that term sympathetic joy. And I've not heard that or used that before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I, I am like very excited. Like when there is a positive, a good thing, like I think it's worth emphasizing and getting excited about and rallying around and, and sharing because you never know what other things, because that's like, there's so much that's out of control and that can be out of your control. And so like, I think it's important to recognize like the good, the little, the minute and the micro and the macro, because also the micro and the macro, there's so many things that are out of our control that aren't good. Um, and so I think they all, like, if you can highlight and, and emphasize and be excited and like uh, underscore really good things, like, that can help hopefully like offset the bad things that like you have less control over and that I might not see. And I might not know that exists um, for any one person. All right. Kendall, 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I know you got class to get to, sweetheart. Um, the final thing I'm going to ask, we ask all of our guests this, and you've already woven in some things, and this can be concise because I don't want to make you late on your first day. <laughs> Three concrete strategies that generally are not negotiable in your life in terms of how you help mitigate overwhelm and navigate overwhelm. So what are three daily practices that really serve you well? Three concrete strategies. Um, I move my body every day, like whether it's a run, whether it's a walk, whether it's yoga, whether it's like an exercise class with a friend or a, a family member, I really like to move. And I realize the, um, the type of movement I've, I've, I'm an ex athlete, ex college athlete, ex high school athlete. And so I've been working my way back in terms of like what counts as movement and what qualifies as movement. Mm. So I'm working through that, but definitely like moving and like activity being active every day. Um, that's really important to me. Um, another thing that's really important to me every day is I do like, I like to hang out with people like I there will be I will see someone have a phone call with someone or see someone for a meal or just catch up with someone um, on the patio. You know, there will be some sort of social interaction that of my of my own volition in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very important to me. And I also. I think I do like to rest mm-hmm. and I think rest I, I, I I'd say sleep but I don't want to be disingenuous like there are some nights I don't get my you know eight hours and so I like to rest and so maybe for me one night that's like binging a whole series of a tv show because mm-hmm. and in lieu of sleep and that's not healthy but that makes me feel good and like <laughs> resting so I like to rest and I think uh, there's different types of rest and but every day I'll whether that's like I read or that doesn't happen as often at school, but it happens a lot when I'm on break or mm-hmm. I watch TV or I just like sat and I drove, I, I ran an errand for myself and I sat in my car for like 15 minutes after and just like listened to the a few songs I just like wanted to hear. Like I will rest at different times. I think that looks different in different days and, and different weeks and times, but resting every day, like my mind, I guess. So sometimes body, sometimes just mind, but I will rest every day. Kendall, getting to watch you grow up has been such a joy, and I've gotten to be colleagues with your mom, and that has been a true privilege, and anytime I get to be in the presence of your pops, it is a delight, and just getting to see you over the years has really, really, really been a gift for me and for my family, so I am just really honored that you took time to talk with us today and to share everything you did. And I so appreciate it. So I hope you have a wonderful first day at school and a really wonderful senior year. Of course, Laura, I was so honored when you asked. <laughs> I truly honored. Thank you for taking time to listen to me. I'm just- I really enjoyed chatting with you. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles, with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs-White. Thank you for downloading and subscribing, and, as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. 
We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week. 